The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. So it is trade all the time. It has to do with China. Uh, the details that we know at this point that both sides seem to have agreed upon is A, there does appear to be some text uh, that has been agreed upon, and B, the December 15th tariffs will not go into effect. Chinese negotiators saying that U.S. has agreed to roll back some of the existing tariffs. President Trump tweeting out uh, that perhaps some of the levies will be reduced, uh, but sort of unclear as to what that is. Joining us here in our interaction broker studios, Leland Miller, chief executive officer of China Beige Book International. And we've been framing a lot of the trade negotiations in the light of who does uh, does the, the trade war hurt more, the U.S. or China? Can you give us a sense of whether that is a legitimate frame to view the negotiations through, that basically China's hurting so much that they need to come to the table? It's a, it, it's a good framework, but it's only one of the many frameworks. I mean, you also have to look at what Tr- President Trump feels is pressure as you approach 2020. That's why we're doing a deal right now. So you, there's, there's various pressures on the, on, the, on the two sides. And, you know, China is hurt more by tariffs, and in the U.S. does have more leverage. But President Trump has more time-sensitive pressure uh, right now. So there's, uh, there's a lot going on, and I think both sides are, have been pushing towards a deal, and this is where we start. When you talk about uh, China saying that they are going to roll back some of their tariffs in tandem with the U.S. doing the same, how big of a victory is that? I mean, can you give us a sense of what kind of tariffs China does put on U.S. imports and and imports from other nations? Well, the problem from the very beginning for, for the Chinese is that they didn't have a reciprocal amount even close to be able to put tariff for tariff on U.S. goods. So they applied uh, tariffs, but these were never particularly damaging. The the companies they hurt the most were ones that were sort of facing it from both directions. They were paying China tariffs and they were paying U.S. tariffs. They're sort of caught in the middle. So this is the pullback on the Chinese side is important in that it's another element of de-escalation, but it's it's not the headline here. The headline is certainly what the Chinese are getting on tariff rollback and what the or reduction and what the U.S. is getting in terms of reforms outside of purchases, uh, which is which is the real big question right now. Well, and have we gotten any kind of detail on that whatsoever? No. And I think that's one of the reasons that this thing has been in flux all day long. Uh, what was being announced yesterday uh, it was interesting. Almost every news source had a different twist on what was supposedly coming out. And, but everybody had this gigantic, some level of gigantic deal with huge rollbacks. And, and it was, this is very interesting from our perspective because very recently even, I mean, this past week, there was still a lot of internal discussion amongst the, you know, the administration's team on whether the best method to move forward was rate reductions or rollbacks. And so there, there didn't see to, to be an agreement yet. What we're seeing come into play right now is it looks like neither one out they're both part of the solution and you're going to see a tariff rate reduction at first and then you're going to 
probably see, I think this is what's, what's next, you're going to be seeing uh, some of these other tariffs rolled back as the Chinese deliver on their purchase agreement. So this is sort of a combo deal that's, that's being put in there so that the U.S. maintains a little bit more leverage. Do we have a sense of whether the phase two negotiations are baked into this phase one deal? In other words, a time frame, what the issues are going to be, something to get uh, you know, a little bit more into the public domain. So, so what I've been saying for several months now is that there, there's not going to be a phase two or a phase three. Um, now, I have, to, I have to tweak that now because what phase one has become is a multi-phase agreement on itself. So that now phase 1B is gonna be the equivalent of phase two. And so this basically, people are gonna be able to call anything any way they want. If whatever happens today in the signing, you know, the next few days will be part of this first phase. And the next part of it will be an extension of phase one, but will it be phase two or phase 1B? I mean, this is gonna start getting really confusing. I'm just imagining the sort of, uh, <laughs> the Roman numeral outline that we're creating for phase one is, is going to be extensive. What is the implication for the Chinese economy? In other words, will this allow uh, an acceleration or at least uh, a, a ceasing in the deceleration that we've seen? Uh, it, it may not. It, it won't stop the deceleration of the Chinese economy overall because that has a structural reason having to do with the fact that the Chinese economy has too much debt. But what the Chinese have been trying to do, they're trying to do here, they've been trying to do since the very beginning of the trade war, is avert some of the worst case scenarios. They want to make the situation better for themselves. It's not tariffs that are, that are crushing growth in China. But these make it very difficult to enact any type of reforms, to allow businesses to go bust, because there's, there's, it's just additional pressure added on. So if the Chinese can lessen the amount of pressure from tariffs and from Trump, then all of a sudden it becomes a little bit easier to do the things that they need to do to fix the economy. All right. And so uh, just can you give us a sense of the lay of the land in China? Because we've heard a lot about defaults and, and picking up in China. How are things going? Well, we're going to have data coming out in the, in the coming days, and so I don't want to jump the gun on this. But what I will say is this. There is an enormous amount of credit being pumped to the system in China, and we saw that in Q2, Q3. We saw it early in our Q4 data. There is this idea that the, the, the Chinese economy is not getting sufficient stimulus. It's nonsense. We're seeing some of the highest credit provision levels that we've ever seen all the way back 10 years in China Beige Book. We're not seeing the heavy infrastructure stimulus stuff yet. We may never see it. Hopefully, we don't. But we are seeing plenty of credit going to firms from the banking sector, from the shadow banking sector, uh, bond sales at, a, at, a, at an all-time high. So there is plenty, plenty of reason why they're keeping this thing fluffed up. And I think if you also get uh, a relief from some of the tariff pressures, then you may see a little bit of improvement uh, in the coming, in coming weeks and months. Leland Miller, thank you so much uh, for coming in today. Fantastic insight. Leland Miller, Chief Executive Officer of China Beige Book International, uh, joining us here in our interactive broker studio. Quite a Friday the 13th of news with we've got the China and U.S. trade deal uh, coming to some sort of fruition. We're getting some conflicting details. The most concrete aspect that we do know is that the U.S. will not impose the uh, the December 15th tariffs. Both sides agreeing on that with Chinese uh, negotiators saying that and then President Trump following up with a tweet less clear about whether the U.S. would roll back any existing tariffs with China saying that they would, uh, and President Trump saying that they won't. How does a trader 
negotiate with all of this data and figure out what to do. And joining us now to speak about just that, David Kudla, he's chief executive officer and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management. Uh, David, what did you make of today? Good morning, Lisa. Well, I think that, uh, you know, this is actually good news for investors and good news for the markets. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about what the phase one deal really constitutes. But the good news for the markets and good news for investors is what we know, at least, is there's no further escalation uh, of the trade war. Uh, the, the tariffs that were going to go in on December 15th won't go in. There won't be any retaliatory tariffs from uh, the Chinese. And, you know, the tariffs that were going in for the U.S. were not only punitive on on uh, the, the U.S. tariffs for the Chinese, were not only punitive on Chinese goods, but they were going to impact uh, a lot of U.S. companies as well. So it was very important in that respect. The... Uh, the result is, is is we see no further escalation, and, and that's what the markets want to hear. Right. That's what the markets want to hear. That's what we've been hearing all along. And yet you're looking right now at an S&P basically flat. Uh, the NASDAQ uh, up to tenths of a percent. The Dow basically unchanged. I, I mean, how come we're not seeing a bigger pop? Well, th- there could be a little bit of buy the rumor, sell the news, because we've been hearing this over the past couple of days. I think there's been some expectation that this is what we get. That the tar- I think there's been an expectation by the markets that the tariffs would not go into an effect. So we've had a, a pretty good week for the markets the last couple of days. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got, you know, green for the Dow and NASDAQ, flat on the S&P 500. But the last couple of days, uh, you know, we've had, uh, or at least, you know, yesterday, pretty good market. And uh, I think, though, that if you take the combination of this uh, and uh, certainty on Brexit with uh, uh, Boris Johnson's big win and what we we're seeing with uh, action out of the Fed and what's coming there, we've got a constructive environment for stocks here through the end of the year and headed into 2020. Okay, that's actually something similar to what Kara Kadana, chief U.S. economist, was saying earlier this morning. He was saying, if you get some sort of truce where you don't get the December 15th tariffs, we have that uh, the U.K. election over, we're probably going to get Brexit uh, pretty easily next month. That's going to tur- turbocharge uh, the U.S. economy. How much do you think that that will uh, translate into significant gains in U.S. equities and other risk assets? Well, it's interesting. When, when we look at all the factors, and, and we've had three quarters of negative earnings growth, or, or basically earnings contraction, and probably going to have uh, you know, a struggle in the fourth quarter again with earnings. We look for earnings to improve in 2020. Uh, but earnings just haven't mattered really this year, as we, is evident by the, the advance we've seen in the major indexes. And even with uh, you know all the anxiety over the trade war and the uncertainty over Brexit and these other factors, what it's really come back to, uh, I believe, we believe, is the Fed and the amount of li- liquidity uh, that they are uh, injecting into the system. We had, at this time last year, a very hostile Fed uh, in terms of their tone towards the market. And that was a big part of what we think, you know, big part of the sell-off we saw last year, 19.6% by, by Christmas Eve of last year, the fourth quarter, from September 20th through December 24th. The Fed changed their tone, and the markets did a lot better starting on uh, December 26th and did well all year. 
quantitative easing, quantitative tightening has turned to quantitative easing. Uh, we've gotten that somewhat forced on the Fed through these uh, repo operations, but that money going yeah. into the system, that injection of uh, liquidity is uh, more money all the same that's going into, it's making its way into, into equities, making its way into the financial markets. And, you know, we go back to that old adage, don't fight the Fed. And yeah. I think that's one of the most important catalysts for the markets going forward. And that money's coming to the system and it's pushing asset prices higher. David, that's a really salient point, especially as we see yields go lower today on this deal. Uh, and, and this comes after uh, they rose quite a bit yesterday, yields up, price down uh, with the prospect of some sort of trade deal looming ever imminent. And the idea is that, you know, how high can Treasury yields go, given how much liquidity the Fed is pumping into the system, and that that kind of reality, where you have stable rates and you have a constructive uh, business uh, environment, is going to be perfect for U.S. equities, and that's what people have been saying. What kind of returns are you expecting next year uh, for the S&P? Well, we've obviously had a better year this year than than many would have expected, and and I think that that. Next year, we could be surprised again. Uh, you know, I could give the normal forecast that everyone gives. We'll get somewhere between 6 and 9% returns that you hear a lot of people forecast every year. Yeah. But I, I, think, I think next year, we've got an election year. Uh, I'll say the same thing I said last year, that the economy would be better than many expected. We had so many predicting a recession, so many predicting a bear market last year at this time. And, you know, I just wouldn't be surprised if we see double-digit returns for the major indexes next year. Interesting. And just real quick also, because uh, we do have you from Michigan, I'm wondering what the trade deal could mean for the auto industry, given how beaten up, uh, or not beaten up, but but certainly with auto sales uh, in decline for as long as they have or decelerating to the degree they have. Well, it, it, it's very important because, uh, you know, it, and we've talked about this, it, it's just... Uh, the auto industry, and when we talk about uh, these tariffs on imports, it, it's not the same environment of 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, there is so many uh, parts and subsystems and vehicles uh, that are shipped uh, abroad and, and, and cross international lines. Uh, when you look at uh, between Michigan and Canada and between uh, the U.S. and Mexico, it's, it's literally as if the assembly lines crisscross those international lines. Yeah. So it, it's very important that uh, there's certainty, uh, certainly for supply chains and for where vehicles are being produced and shipped to, that, that the auto companies have certainty as they're determining uh, where they put plants, uh, yeah. where they uh, develop their supply chains. And because... Uh, many of the automakers, U.S. and otherwise, are global automakers now. Right. Uh, you know, what's going on here is very disruptive uh, right. to the U.S. automakers, GM, Ford, uh, Fiat Chrysler, and automakers around the world. So, yeah. you know, as much as anything, they want to see some certainty around this. So the more this gets uh, worked out, the better. David Kudla, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Strategist at Mainstay uh, Capital Management. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Uh, just to reiterate the headlines about China, that the U.S. has agreed not to implement the threatened uh, December 15th tariffs. Uh, we also have uh, some discussion of a trade deal that has been signed off on, at least by uh, President Trump and Chinese negotiators. Exactly what that looks like, though, uh, does remain to be seen. We are seeing corn and soy prices in particular rise on the heels of this. Michael Hertzer joining us now, an agricultural reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from Chicago. Chicago. Michael, can you first just give us a sense of uh, what the impact of the trade skirmish between the U.S. and China has had on the agricultural sector over the past two years? Sure. So, I mean, uh, exports to China, you know, that one of the top markets in the world have plunged from the U.S. Um, they've started to recover a bit as the two sides have, you know, had various bouts uh, at the negotiating table, but still remain below levels, uh, you know, seen as recently as 2017. And uh, farmers are, are struggling with uh, prices. Um, prices have gotten a little better, but um, there's still more supply than there is demand. And, and they really want China to come back. What do we know so far about the agricultural component of the trade deal that appears to be struck between the U.S. and China? At the, the press conference that they just held, you know, 11 p.m. in Beijing, um, they said they would notably increase um, imports. But and that's kind of all we have. They did say they want to keep things um on WTO rules and make purchases as the market dictates, which um, traders kind of took that as as China kind of continuing to buy um, as best suits them, which could be from the U.S., it could be from Brazil, um, as far as soybeans go. So the details remain elusive, and China did not confirm sort of reports of commitments of as many as $50 billion of, of imports in 2020. And um, people were really hoping for that. All right. So um, what are some of the questions now that remain? Basically, you know, can, can, they, can they import $50 billion worth of U.S. ag goods? Is that even possible? Uh, back in 2017, they imported about $20 billion. So this would be kind of double, more than double pre-trade war levels. And you could look at Hong Kong, and that's maybe another $4 billion or so. And even if you add those together, um, getting to that $50 billion number, even if China has committed to that, is still just kind of a major question mark. One thing that I was struck by in the Beijing press conference by Chinese trade negotiators, they were saying that they're trying to develop their own internal uh, agricultural and, uh, and and poultry, for example, exports. And they were talking about exporting poultry. Uh, is, is that going to be part of this, that basically they want to develop uh, their, their products as well on this side and are trying trying to promote that? Or is this just a messaging issue? You know, that is that is um, this sort of a tit for tat on the poultry. Um, they allowed for some, I believe it's prepared Chinese poultry products to come into the U.S. in exchange for reopening the Chinese market to U.S. poultry. Um, so I think people think there might be some prepared products that would come back into the U.S. How? Um, 
How good do you think this deal will be for uh, for farmers across America? I mean, do you think that this sort of certainty and China coming back into the market will stave off some of the increase in bankruptcies that we've seen in the upper mid- Midwest? You know, I think that, you know, it still really remains to be seen. The fact that China was, you know, up late on Friday having a press conference and publicly saying that, you know, a phase one has been reached is is great news for farmers, but now kind of getting down to the brass tacks of how this is all going to play out, um, it, it should be good. How good is is kind of the question. And can you give us a sense of where we are in the shakeout? Because there have been uh, uh, bankruptcies that have been in, with an increasing pace in the upper Midwest. And this doesn't just have to do with trade skirmishes. This has to do uh, with the price of grain and a whole host of other issues as well. Where are we in that shakeout? Yeah. So, you know, the U.S. government has has doled out, you know, I think $24 billion in aid payments as these trade disputes have gone on, which has helped uh, with farmer finances. But this could be sort of a reckoning um, in the next six months to a year as as this stuff really starts to play out. And farmers need things to get better to kind of smooth out a few down years on finances. Um, it's getting to be credit conditions are are maybe improving slightly for farmers, but they're very stressed and, and they need some help. Michael Hertzer, thank you so much for being with us. Michael Hertzer, agricultural reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Chicago. We've been talking a lot about trade and the idea that the U.S. and China have come to some sort of agreement, but we can't let that uh, overshadow the incredible victory of Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom uh, overnight. If you take a look, with all seats declared, the conservatives had won 365 of the 650 seats in the House of Commons. That is a gain of 48 to Labor's 203 seats, which is down 59, a massive win, uh, possibly the most since the 1930s. Joining us now, Professor Danny Blanchflower. Uh, he's professor of economics at Dartmouth College. He's in Geneva. What are you doing in Geneva, Danny? Well, interesting days. I'm actually in, in Geneva. I gave a keynote at a big um, conference here on full employment sort of relevant to what's going on around the world and relevant to what's happened in the UK where basically lots of people are hurting and I'm just looking at the list of seats that the Labour Party lost in the traditional Labour heartland, Burnley, Birmingham, Derby, and Glasgow, um, all, all around the country, Newcastle under line, Peterborough, Scunthorpe. I mean, this is a devastating defeat and I think really driven by on the doorstep that the election in the end didn't come down to Brexit. It came down to the leader of the Labour Party, who people saw as, as, as unelectable um, and, and had nothing to offer them. So I think it's very interesting. And the other point is that the polls, the opinion polls, which have been bad in the past, got it absolutely spot on. Okay, so I, I guess that is the takeaway here that, uh, that, that, that UK citizens are just sick of Brexit discussions, just want it done? Or is the takeaway really that Brexit was sort of the backdrop issue and that it was a lot of other things that took the fore uh, that really drove Boris Johnson to victory? Well, I think it was that. I mean, the message in a way was, I mean, if you think of the Trump message, make America great again. Uh, And Boris's message was get Brexit done 
And nobody had the faintest clue what uh, Jeremy Corbyn's view on Brexit was the biggest issue in 50 years in, in Britain. And he said, well, I'll wait and I'll think about it later because everyone knew that he was against it. And one of the big things that also happened was that he, he, he had the issues of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. In the, and the week before the election, he was asked on one interview four times, would he condemn anti-Semitism? And he wouldn't. I mean, how in goodness only name you wouldn't condemn anti-Semitism, but he didn't, and that had a huge electoral effect. So I think it was that Boris had a simple message, um, wanted to get things done, and the opposition just looked clueless. And the, and the interesting thing, in a way, was that the economic package that Labour was giving was probably the most sensible spending on the NHS, infrastructure spending, and actually some renationalizations that were hugely popular. But that wasn't the message that came through. And on the doorstep, it turned out that Brexit was kind of third. It was about, this is not a credible opposition. I'm scared to death of having somebody like Jeremy Corbyn in there. And the other one is that the, the leader of the third party lost her seat. And so she, so she resigned from the third party. So this is, this is the worst thing the worst defeat for Labour since 1935. How Jeremy Corbyn has not resigned, I don't know. I mean, I was on his advisory panel uh, in 2016, along with Piketty and Joe Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winner, and we all bailed out when we realised very quickly that this was a disaster in the making. Yeah. Well, and he had nothing to offer. And so it's a combination of things, and I think the take-home, the take in a sense, for the United States is that populist leaders with simple messages which appeal to people who are hurting and don't really explain in full detail what they're going to do, is electorally popular. It's what we saw in 2016. It may well be what we'll see in 2020. And Trump is going to take this as an indicator that maybe, you know, if he goes along with this kind of message, he's going to go get reelected. So given your political experience and given your experience uh, on the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee as a member, can you give us a sense of what the victory means for the economy, what you expect going forward uh, for the United Kingdom? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the first thing is that at least it settles the uncertainty. Markets know what's coming. Um, we've seen a surge in the stock market. We've seen um, home builders, utilities, um, pushing forward. We've seen a gain in the pound. And my suspicion is that the MPC at this, this meeting next week may seriously consider doing a rate cut because the uncertainty is sort of being resolved. But the economy is sitting in the doldrums. And the last meeting, there were two dissenters looking for for a cut. And I mean, so the reality is that the Bank of England is the only show in town right now. I mean, we'll, we'll get a new chance for the Exchequer. And maybe in the next two or three weeks, you and I will be talking about the appointment of a new governor that Boris is, is going to make. My suspicion is he might appoint my old, my old college roommate, Jerry Lyons, who was his um, chief economist uh, in, in London. He and I were grad students together. Wait, wait, hold on a so second. So that's what he may well do. But you were, wait, 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 wait. You were roommates. You're not getting away with that, yeah. with saying that you were roommates. What was he like as a roommate? Well, I mean, I mean, when I say a roommate, he was actually my office mate. You know, we didn't share digs, but we, we worked <laughs> together. I mean, he's got it, you know, so let's get this clear, right? I mean, the answer is well, a very well-trained economist, got a PhD in economics and macro, got very well experienced in the city of London, earned a lot of money, worked as an economist for, for Boris Johnson when he was the mayor, and has been strongly pro-Brexit. I mean, he and I have disagreed on that, but you would certainly call him a credible, trained economist. Um, he's been very kind of pro-green, pro, pretty pretty strong on boosting the economy, and might well result in you know some 
some move to the centre. But my suspicion is now Boris can do whatever Boris likes. And, and I think Jerry Lyons now goes to the top of the heap. Um, I mean, he's a smart, good guy. Yeah. Basically. I disagree with, but, you know, would you, would you say to me, would he be a good appointment? I would say, yeah, I, yeah. I could work with the guy. <laughs> All right. Just one minute here. I'm just wondering, uh, going forward, you know, people are saying that uh, business confidence is going to be unleashed and people will spend again. Is that accurate, given the uncertainties that remain with an actual trade deal with the UK and the EU? Well, it's a really great question. I mean, obviously, the, the, the thing we've talked about is get Brexit done. And you say, OK, we're going to do this in January. But Macron immediately came out today and said, well, OK, now the real business starts. What are you going to do? Are you going to negotiate a deal with us? Are you going to, instead of just coming out with, you know, with, dream, with dreamland stuff, um, you, uh, are you going to seriously negotiate with us um, and, and compromise? So I think that's what happens. And then, of course, what happens is you go into a long transition period. You need to resolve the issues in Ireland. He's certainly going to be faced with the prospect of losing Scotland. I mean, the, the SNP... Um, basically swept the board in Scotland. They're going to ask for a second referendum. They're actually going to say, we want to leave the, Europe, leave the UK and go back to the EU. So there are going to be all these kinds of issues. In a sense, this is a, you win this thing and you say everything's easy. Yeah. And now the hard stuff starts. So I think you know, Macron has immediately gone in and said, so what's your negotiating position? You can't make up this stuff. You've actually got to sit at the table with us and you can't cherry pick. Yeah. Can't cherry pick a little bit that you like. If you if you want to do that, it's a no deal Brexit yeah. disaster. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. I could speak with you all day, uh, Danny Blanchflower, professor of economics at Dartmouth College. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us and giving us that fantastic perspective uh, from Geneva. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.